all of that kind of strategic thinking, I completely skip usually, and I just go straight to, oh, I saw something, it looks really good, the price is right, whether or not I can afford it, I haven't really looked at my cash flow, even depending on that day, and I just go ahead and buy it, and I create these fires for my team, <laughs> where they now have to deal with this new software that I have no idea how to use, that I barely spent five minutes looking into. Helping people build ambitious and satisfying careers, businesses, and lives. This is the Influence Ecology Podcast. Now, here is your host, John Patterson. It's unavoidable. Someone will ask me what I do for work and I study myself and then answer, my company offers the leading business education in transactional competence. And almost every time and almost on cue, they tilt their head slightly forward and to the right, eyes focused and they utter, huh? And I say, you and I are always transacting for everything. Most obvious is what we do to make a living, but there are also the transactions that produce our identity and reputation. There's dating, family, relationships, there's politics, the environment, and on and on. You and I have been transacting to survive since birth. If we don't get what we need from others, we die. Some people transact really well, but unfortunately, most people never get past the basic survival level exchanges. Transactional competence is often the defining difference between those who live very well and those who are forced to sacrifice their time, health, and relationships in pursuit of their financial aims. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in the world. I'm your host, John Patterson, broadcasting from Ojai, California. This is the podcast for you, the ambitious professional who simply wants an advantage. Most of the people that listen to this, they, they don't want to settle for an ordinary life. They want real results, real satisfaction, not just at work, but in every area of life. If you've ever watched a young child at the grocery checkout haggling with his mother or father about candy, you'll begin to see how inescapable this is. You'll observe the child begging, playing it sweet or sad or cute, playing one parent against another, and even the full-blown tantrum, all an attempt to get what they want. And whatever works on mom or dad seems to set a pattern in motion. A pattern that in later years turns into business models, philosophical views, and core beliefs about how to survive a world of seven billion people who get up each morning to a world of exchanges. Adam Smith in The Wealth of Nations said, we are the exchange animal. No other species exchanges to survive. We do. In fact, effective reciprocal exchange is so fundamental to our species success that it is often taken for granted, like the air we breathe. It's overlooked, it's rarely studied, and seldom practiced. These are the stories of small business owners, creative professionals, entrepreneurs, or corporate executives, and what they have in common is their ambition. They deliberately study and practice transactional competence, and rather than merely survive, they thrive, not just financially, but in so many areas of life. Our featured interview is with Luisa De Silva. She is the owner of DS Cleaning and Maid Service in Miami Beach, Florida. Her family immigrated to the United States from Rio de Janeiro, Brazil, and she took over for her mom, running the family's maid service company. 
After a short while, she found herself overworked, stressed, fat, in her words, and searched in vain to find the silver bullet solution to her problems, and none came. In this episode, you'll learn how she went from a naive arsonist, in other words, making more fires than solutions, and found a plan, a focus, and the answers she's hoped for. Also, today's Guru Talk illustrates one of the principles Louisa discovered during her entrepreneurial journey. This talk is from a webinar led by co-founder Kirkland Tibbles in May of 2015. In this talk, we speak to three different orientations to action. These are self-action, interaction, and transaction. As we study transactional competence, the segment of this talk is designed to illustrate what is not a transactional orientation, and it points to the naivete and danger of self-action, a very common and popular orientation to activity. Louisa, first of all, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, I had a ball reading the information that you sent me this morning, uh, looking through some of your journey. Uh, I think uh, the journey that people go through is, is quite fascinating, so welcome. Thank you, thank you, John, thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely welcome. Well, um, first of all, tell us a little bit about you, just so we can get to know who you are and uh, your company and, and uh, what you do. Sure. So I live in um, Miami Beach, Florida now, but I work out of Fort Lauderdale, and I own a cleaning service for the past nine years. We're going into our 10th year in June. It's a family service. My mom started it in, t- in 1997, a couple of years after we um, immigrated from Brazil. And, um, you know, she took care of business and kept the business going for about 12 years before I stepped into it and just was going to help her out for a little bit while I was going to school. Um, and then I kind of never left ever since. Mm-hmm. And now my sister works with us. So me and my sister are partners now, and we are um, moving into more focused offers, you know, with our clients. Yeah, we have a, a great kind of plan for the next three years to make this into a profitable enterprise that works with our employees and really delivers on what our clients need. So That's great. And I'm 32 and I'm recently married again and no children and hoping to have a bunch. <laughs> All right, good. All right, I'm uh, just going to ask you a few things. I didn't know you were uh, you immigrated from Brazil. Yeah, from Rio. And then, so did your mother come here for work, or was there something that brought you guys to the United States? Yeah, my dad and his dreams. Um, he's definitely an inventor, and he's always loved the U.S. and you know the dream and the vision. He pretty much taught himself how to speak English through books when he was a teenager and in at while working he just really wanted to come over and once he he has a career in the air forces there in the Brazilian military and he completed his tenure at like 38 and so it was time to do something else and he really wanted to come here so he basically spent three years here by himself getting ready getting all of us our papers and all of our situations worked out we basically sold our house and every stick of furniture and moved here with two suitcases each and you know planned on staying all right well so you said your mom started the business uh how many years ago in 1997 
Yeah, so basically she got, because you know, we none of us spoke English. My dad was the only one that kind of had some basic grasp of the language. My mom used to be a stay-at-home mom. I have a brother and a sister, so there's three of us, and she pretty much took care of us growing up, and so she didn't have any formal training. You know, high school was what she finished, and that was it. And so she got here. We needed to have both incomes. You know, life isn't as cushy in a, you know, in a new country, and she just had to go to work, and so that's something that she could immediately do with, you know, limited English and in the place that we're at, Deerfield Beach, Boca area, which is like Little Brazil around here. And that's where she started working with someone else. The cleaning industry for service workers, period, it can be really a harsh environment. And so she just pretty much went off on her own and started with her own business. And mm. she grew it. And she really did very well. She, she had two other cleaners working with her, but it was her doing the work. And then about 2007, she's like, she's turning 48, knew that if she kept doing the work, she was getting older, basically, and just needed a break. But she knew that if she stopped working, she would lose the business and the clients. And so I was doing kind of project-based work for different um, organizations, like the Chambers, the Women's Chamber here, the Core Gables Chambers, and just different small businesses. And I, that's what I used to do. They gave me a project with a budget for a certain amount of time, and I used to bring it together and mm. do a lot of admin work. And so I was like, I'll help you for a couple of years. I was going to school at the time and just really had the time available. But I found that to really love building the business and getting into the nuts and bolts of the offer and building something that people want and creating income that's, that pays for my lifestyle. So that part yeah. I really liked and so I've been working on it ever since. It's really good. Let's do a, a fast forward because this story has, you know, sort of a, a beginning and, and a middle and an end. Let's go all the way to the end here for just a second. As I said, you've been participating here at Influence Ecology for four years. And I know you've been doing really, really well. You're one of our most advanced members in our, our MAP2 program, which are, are, is our most advanced program. So for anybody listening, I can imagine that in their mind when they think of a, a cleaning service, then they may say, hmm, that, I don't know if that business is like mine or like my business model or... Uh, how how can I relate to that business? So is there anything you could say about where you are now? I know you're still learning, you're still growing, we all are. Uh, but anything that you can say now about your business and how people might relate to what you do uh, and your role in that company? Yeah, my role every day is just really developing and building our business and our offer. Um, I work with my sister. She's kind of the operations manager, and she runs the day. And I pretty much do the structure and building and the office part of it, like putting the systems in place. And our business is a people business, and it's people on both sides. And the part that makes it especially interesting is that I don't do any of the work, right? So I go in, I sell, the, or our company sells our website and different marketing materials. I, a lot of times, go in and meet with clients and kind of go through and make sure that they understand what they're purchasing and that we're a mutual fit. But that's my role at that point. And then our cleaners go in to perform the service. So there's a lot of people managing, hiring the right person to do the job, the right fit, um, making sure that all of the systems are in place to kind of onboard that person well because you're not going to be with them. The service is a team-based service. So there's a leader and there's a, a helper. So there's all these roles. And we really need to make sure that the roles are clear and that everyone knows how to get the job done. So it's a really involved process. And then you have the client, which is kind of like our biggest competitor because 
it's their whims and moods about cleaning. And cleaning is kind of a nebulous thing anyway because it's, it means so many different things to different people. Yeah. So it's, for us, it's a lot of just doing the basics, educating our clients and really making sure they know what they're getting and that we keep consistent. It's a lot of work, and it's a lot of work dealing with people and managing systems and making sure that what you promised gets delivered every time. And so we're very busy. You know, people think that cleaning is just a mop, a bucket, and a price point, but it's so much more than that. Really, really great. All right, well, then, let's just start so we can learn a little bit. If we go back to the beginning, uh, your life before studying with us here, if you're like me, there are my ideas about how I was going to make a living or how I was going to, you know, have this thing turn out. Tell us a little bit about the the days before studying with Influence Ecology. What what did you used to do to have life turn out? So just at the very beginning of my whole career, um, in my 20s, I was very, very cocky and had a huge ego. So I would basically, and I'm an inventor, right, so I can pretty much create things off the cuff, no problem. And I would go into these situations not really knowing what to do, but once talking to people and getting what their needs were, I was pretty much able to mold myself and what I delivered to the client. So I was very successful at doing my job. And so that's how I thought that I could run a business easily. Um mm. And my models in life were just, you know, work really hard. I can do it. It's all very self-motivated. You know, just keep pushing. It'll all work out. Keep the possibility alive and all of those kind of wishful thinking. And what I thought back then was planning, but not planning as I've learned here, to have your resources catalogs, your teams, the right people in the right place, the solution to a specific problem that a prospect actually experiences and wants to pay for and wants me to do that work for them. You know, to do all the thinking beforehand was something that I just was not with at all. It was just come in, you know, do my spiel, close the deal. That's what I was good at. And then figure out pretty much what, how to do the job and, you know, really struggle and work on the background, you know, to create the systems that I said that I could do because I saw their vision and I kind of saw a way to get there. And now it's like I really take a step back beforehand and I map out the strategies and create the specific tactics that'll have me reach my aims and see if it's going to work out and kind of do a six-month, you know, flow out of the project and see if it's actually going to meet my aims. And I used to do it all backwards. It was like, okay, so if I, how I started the company literally was I sat with my mom and we said, how much money do you want to make? So we want to make X amount of money. And I'm willing to do this amount of work for these amount of hours. So I need to have, you know, 50 clients for the first six months. So I literally went out and I just networked like crazy. And we had not one, because I'm not from that the cleaning industry. I don't know how to do the service. So I used to just oversell and have a really hard time in the background trying to hire the people that I needed right away, right, because I couldn't have people in the background just waiting, and then training them and then creating the systems and then talking to my mom because she used to be kind of the field support back then, and it was just a mess. And I experienced a lot of just, the stress was unbelievable. And so I took every course that I could get my hands on. I saw as many speakers as I could. I would even fly out to like national conferences to get the next big thing, to really find that one piece that was going to solve all my problems. So the Let's shiny syndrome kind of thing. Yeah, the shiny object syndrome. Or, uh, well, let's talk about that for a second because you mentioned a couple of things. I, I think it's worth noting, especially for people, I'll say, like you and me. So you said I'm an inventor. For our audience, an inventor is a personality that we describe here at Influence Ecology. It's one of the ways that 
some people tend to transact. It's a way that they approach business, business models. They, it's a way that they approach life, in fact. Um, so if we poke at ourselves for just a minute, Louisa, uh, two inventors, you said some things about that, you know, very, uh, I can do it, right, you know. Um, what have you learned about yourself as an inventor that would be good for other people to hear about? What What are some of the things that you learned? What did you discover? What are some of the things you have to be wary of, careful about? Well, I can say that now I'm self-aware, but back then I wasn't. It was just a lot of ego about what I thought I could do and the things that I promised just off the cuff because I saw I could see a way to get the problem resolved or I could see the problem itself, and I thought that meant that I knew how to fix it, right? So I can create a bunch of ideas and have a lot of good concepts, but what happens in my head is I immediately want to go to work on them. Like I want to sit down, like for me to solve our computer systems, I just sit down and I go, I see that's a problem, I go to Google, I find, if I have time that day, I find four or five different companies, if not one or two, and I just think that they're going to meet our aims, I call them up, and I basically buy one or two of the of the softwares and I just kind of start doing it without having all the prior planning to articulate like what do we need, what systems do we use now, how can we get better, and just really looking at is, it the, is, it, is there a problem now that we can solve, that I can solve with this software? Is there, do we have the money to afford it? Can it pay for itself later on? Do we actually need to have this whole piece of software or do I have to change some way that we do our business now that won't cost us anything and it can have that problem be solved in the future? So all of that kind of strategic thinking, I completely skip usually and I just go straight to, oh, I saw something, it looks really good, the price is right, whether or not I can afford it, I haven't really looked at my cash flow even depending on that day, and I just go ahead and buy it, and I create these fires for my team <laughs> where they now have to deal with this new software that I have no idea how to use that I barely spent five minutes looking into. So it's kind of like that, yeah. but over and over and over again. Yeah, I think we call it an arsonist. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's really great. I'm laughing mostly because I can I can recognize some of my uh, behavior in that. Um, so, uh, us inventors, we we think we can, we know we can, we can see it, we can imagine it, and we somehow think that is going to translate into yeah, it's, you know, it's, <laughs> I'm Superman. I'm gonna I, I'll make it turn out. Um, so you said you, you did all these courses, you, you did lots of stuff to try to, it sounds like, to find the silver bullet, right? Yeah. And it doesn't sound like you found a silver bullet, right? No, and the thing is that I was looking for a solution to my problem as if there was a solution to my problem. Hmm. It's me working in my company building our systems. And no one person is ever going to sit in my seat and give me the answer because I'm sitting in that seat. So what I was really looking for and I couldn't really articulate back then was a way to think and structure my head because that's the thing with inventors that gets really busy up there. And there's so many ideas and there's so many good things happening that we kind of get lost. And yep. so I was looking for a way to plug my brain in to kind of download all the stuff that was there. I, I can fix my business now. I'm the only one that can do that. And I know that now, but I needed to put that energy toward, like have some kind of a lane where I could do the work. And that practice, that habit 
of sitting down, studying, educating myself on things like the finances, how a service business works, how does it look and feel like operationally. That's what I was looking for, not the next marketing book. I can market anything. You know, back then that's what I used to do, so whatever the new thing was that I was doing. I was very successful at it. It wasn't the tactics. It was more the strategies and how I was going to build it consistently and have other people do it when I wasn't there. Hmm. So that's what I was looking for that I never was able to find before because it didn't exist. I'm creating the company from scratch. Right. All right, good. So if we move to where your ego meets your naivete, then uh, you said some things. You said, you know, it was a royal mess. People looking in would say you were super successful, but you were working a lot, right? So tell us about how life was then. Yeah, so basically I closed two major accounts in a six-month period. And there were two accounts that had to do with two very different aspects of cleaning. One was vacation property, and the other was kind of a hotel short-term residence flipping for a very large um, multinational company. And so lots of cash in, in the influx in lots of doing that needed to be done just to get to service those people, just for our cleaners to be able to go out and be able to service these clients. There was a lot of work to do in the background, organizing work, teamwork, where our company would come in and kind of set the groundwork so our cleaners can go in there. Because obviously we're getting a lot of money for this because it was a mess, right? There was a lot of value for the clients. So I was working from 7 o'clock in the morning until about 9 o'clock at night every single day because these things happened every, you know, seven days a week. As the their business turned, we were there to kind of put it back together. And so there was a lots of structures to be put in place, even where to put the cups for the guests coming in. It was a vacation property kind of thing. And how does the laundry come out? We had over 500 you know, pounds of laundry to do a day. Well, how do you manage that? Do you take it to a laundromat? Or do you, you know, we didn't have the laundry machines at our facilities here at our offices before. That's something that we had to put in place. So it was just constant work. And the people I hired were people that I thought were experts. And I didn't kind of stop even to think, well, why are they unemployed? Um, what's their background? Can, let me test them out first we just kind of put all hands on deck and went to work and because of me I was doing all the work we survived and thrived in that period but it was just extremely costly we were turning around the more revenues than ever but at the same time we were just flushing cash out um, because you know we weren't structured for I mean 500 pounds of laundry what that looks like it's a mountain of laundry that can fit like a 6 by 10 space pretty much from floor to ceiling wow um and we had to have it turned around for the next day and the next day and after that. So I learned a lot in that period, but it was extremely stressful. So basically, my I had no relationships. My life became my work. I was going through a divorce. And as I say, going was pretty much just cruising, just kind of moved out, not processing any of that, just going forward with my life because I didn't have the time to stop and really be with any, you know, anything. So moving into my own place, you know, no furniture, not having any time to deal with it. Just a major chaotic time. I had two assistants and it was still not enough. Um, and so the money was rolling in, but it was also rolling out really fast. And I just got really fat and I, I would need, you know, a bottle of wine between 9.30 and 11.30 so I can go to sleep and try to get a good night's sleep and not freak out. You know, I had my office in my house. So I would sometimes just keep working through the hours of, and just exist, pretty much. Mm. 
Wow. So, so like many people, you were working really hard. You're working, gosh, what is that, a 12, 14 hour days, six days a week, no time for health, no time for relationship, no time for anything, but seemingly like you were doing well. In fact, I think many people would, you'd watch the money grow and you'd probably pat yourself on the back and go, good, we're just doing good. We just need to do more of what we're doing. Did something happen? Did you, uh, did you crash or did you just simply get invited to influence ecology and started to study here? What what happened? Yeah, so I crashed a couple of times, but not badly, you know, because I, I was used to it, sad to say. But then also, yeah, I started influence ecology and I had a conversation with Kirkland and where we kind of sat down and we went through the business model. And I was at that point, I came in with literally a 20-page document about how I was going to scale that business I was in right now and have a staffing company that would serve all three different sectors and, you know, this huge plan, right, as my inventor brain can create, as fabulous as I can. And yeah. he was basically looked at me and he said, you know, sweetie, you can't do, you've got one, you're one body, you can't be in three different places. He said it, you know like he does in Texas, but it was quite funny. Um, <laughs> but basically, yeah, I was just, look, I took a hard look at it and I had to choose one because the way it was going, it was, I wasn't living and it was, was miserable. Mm. So yeah, I started the, the program and you really get to look at, you know, what's working, what's not working and what's the focus you're going in, who's the market that you're going to solve a problem for. And I chose one of the three and I basically let the others go. And for a couple of years, it was very hard turning down business and keeping to the focus and having faith that I was going to go through the whole process and get to the other side of it, you know, and that's where I am now. And I can see now I'm just doing the systems and putting in the thing, the gaps in place, which is what I wanted to have done way back when we started. But now I'm finally getting back to that beginning point where I'm just filling in the gaps, but I'm doing it with a plan and a vision and we're growing this business, the one business now almost to the point where we were before doing, doing, doing the work and working seven days a week with me working pretty much from seven to three. I'm home by four and I can be with my husband and my family and just, you know, life looks a lot different and we're still doing the work, but for one instead of three. That's great. So you said you're working a lot less hours. Are you now working a a five-day week? You still working a seven-day week? Five-day week? No, no, I don't work. Yeah. And I'm trying to cut Mondays out, but... (laughs) trying to go down to a four-day week and you're able to go home at four spend time with your husband what about your health what's happened with your health well um i started having time for that so i'm really into jiu-jitsu and martial arts um brazilian jiu-jitsu and i work out you know five days a week i look you know living in miami beach it's kind of there's an environment there for fit bodies and health um so i'm really enjoying that and i look and i'm in the best shape of my life pretty much since ever i think and um, I'm at the beach all the time. I feel really good. I have time to meditate and to do yoga and just to really take care of myself. That's the, one of the big lessons I'm taking away from my studies is to keep my body fit and my mind clear. Mm. That's the one thing that really has me have the space to take on as much as I've taken on without any of the stressors. Because I'm sure we're, you know, we're doing the same amount of money, but it doesn't look like it did before. Yeah. No struggle. That's fantastic. All right, so people are listening and and there are people who uh, can't imagine uh, moving out of the, you know, the 10, 12, 14 hour days. They can't imagine, you know, it, it just seems like they'd have to work harder. They'd have to, 
you know, uh, something would have to change. What would you tell people who are where you were at the beginning and what they might start to look at to begin to move themselves towards where you are now? Well, I'd say there's definitely something that needs to change. That's for sure. What I had to change in myself was to have a plan in place first to know what I'm doing. What am I coming into work for? What am I building? And really having a pathway of how I'm going to get there. That's been the hardest part for me is really speaking that out and just having it on paper and having my team be aligned with it. And then I come into I have to give all of my work away so I don't do any of the work in the company anymore. I don't answer the phones, I don't do sales quotes, we don't go to people's houses for consultations anymore, I don't talk to the staff, I, I come in and I go into my office and I do work. So my work now is researching, is you know, doing the background, getting our softwares in line, speaking to developers and making sure that for us it's having an operationally efficient offer. So what that means is a lot of ease for people to do business with us, but having a lot of systems and structures in the background. So my day has gotten shorter, but I get a lot more done because I'm really focused on this one thing. And I pretty much you know, plan my life in six-month periods. And so it's a short enough period of time, and that comes from you guys, you know, from um, the back-to-back -back of our conferences. So I started, I came out of conference just two weeks ago, and I'm already working for the one thing that I want to get this quarter, which is to, is to have the, the operationally excellent company being full effect by December 31st. And what that means is clients are going to be able to do, you know, to do some booking online and some really state-of-the-art things for the cleaning industry, but it's going to solve a lot of problems in our offices here where we don't need as many people and we basically we don't use as many people to do what we used to do before. So our offices are much quieter and so we can control things a lot better. And so there isn't that much work to do. There's not that many fires to put out anymore because our team knows what they're doing and we've put a lot of work in that already. So it is kind of stopping yourself, seeing what it is that you want to do, and then fixing one thing that does, whatever it is that's not working now, putting your focus there so you can step back completely as a business owner or the manager and do the work that you need to do, that only you can do. So in a way, my work is a lot more intense because it's very focused and I'm reading a lot more um, and I'm in implementing a lot and it's completely different than I used to do before. So that's how come I can be more effective. One of the notes one of the notes that you, you gave to us, it says, I don't have to fake it that I know it all. And it doesn't mean that I'm weak or stupid if I can't do it all. Tell us about that. Yeah, that's a big one, especially for somebody my age. I have people who are employed with me that have been in the cleaning business for decades. And they, um, they know exactly what they're doing. And um, for me, I'm coming in. I'm not from this industry. I've just kind of stepped in to, to do this with my mom. And there's a lot of things that I had no idea how to do. And beforehand, I would get really defensive about that or really have to put on a face or fake it and just get into a lot of trouble because I couldn't just say I don't know it because of my inventor thing or that I needed some help in that or show me you know, show me that, or even just listening to what people were telling me and just really being more calm and um, not like I needed to prove something. And that's been one of the biggest things is knowing that I am this type, I, I think this way, and I need to have other people that think other ways, and that's actually going to help me. So welcoming those people and being less arrogant about what I know or I know what I don't know um, 
Because, you know, we know a lot, but it doesn't mean anything. It doesn't mean that I can apply that to this service industry. And just really being, um, like I said, less arrogant and knowing that I don't have all the pieces of the puzzle, that I can't win the game on my own, it really puts me at ease about working with other people and offering what I can to my best, but then also taking the people's best. And it doesn't mean anything. It just means that we're working together to bring this thing forward. That's great. All right, um, I'm going to give you a soapbox moment here. Anything that you'd like to say, uh, standing on the soapbox? Okay, so I learned a lot with influence ecology, but there is one lesson, and I'm not really sure when it finally sunk in, but I've been really, this year, I've been working with it and bringing it to my daily practice, is that human beings in the animal kingdom, we're all like biologically motivated to take care of ourselves, our families, and our loved ones, the people we work with. You know, this is like a primal need that we have. And we are like receptors to our environment. I kind of picture it like little wall plugs. And mm-hmm. we, and as we move about the day, we kind of receive feedback and we take action. You know, an email comes in, a phone call comes in, a client comes to see you. And you pretty much behave and you react to that environment. Just cues for what we need to do every day to label on your work. And like the man, you know, that's getting up in the cave in the morning, he looks up, the roof is kind of has a little, it's looking sparse. So he goes out to do that project for the day get some extra thatching and fixes it and he feels happy, right? Because he there was that need that now he provided for and now his family has a roof over their heads that's secure. Mm-hmm. And we're going to do what we do as human beings habitually. You know, we take care of our kids, we go through our emails, we are waiting on sales calls. And but we do that whether it fits or it doesn't fit, whether it moves us toward our aims or it doesn't. And a lot of the times we're not kind of conscious of that. We just kind of go through the motions at work and we do work like I was doing for six years, you know, really struggling and laboring and doing a lot of work, but it didn't mean that I had a business that was replicatable at the end of the day that I could potentially sell and kind of, you know, support my family. Mm. And so that's the big thing for me is having a guidepost that I can come in. Before I come into your office, that day I already know what's on my agenda and it's only one or two things a day you know that's another thing is I don't overwhelm myself anymore and with thinking that I can do so much I only focus on one or two things and those are the things that I do the problems are still come up I still get interrupted but I have that focus and if I do that one thing today I know that it's moving toward my goal and I can satisfy that need that I have to do something to build and to be active use that need to get up and do something in the morning, but focus it so that I'm doing what I need to do to satisfy my aims and not my employees' aims, not my clients' aims, and just really focus on what's going to forward all of us. I selected today's Guru Talk because of one of the principles Louisa illustrates in her entrepreneurial journey. As I said before, this talk is from a webinar led by co-founder Kirkland Tibbles in May of 2015. The webinar is titled, Work, the Activity of Life. And it was a focused lecture on this condition of life. Fundamentally, we distinguish the condition of life work as what you do with your mind and body. And it includes all the activity of a human life. In this talk, we speak to three different orientations to action. Again, these are self-action, interaction, and transaction. Influence ecology is the study of transactional competence and This talk is designed to illustrate the naivete and danger of what we call self-action. It's a very common and widespread orientation to activity in which the individual sees themselves as an overlord of things outside their control. 
in one way or another, you must deal with people. In one way or another, you must learn how to coordinate action. And we think that the, that the proper, most effective, and ethical way to move with another human being is transactional versus self-actional or interactional. So I want to get into some of these particular tenets. We engage things and others as aspects of our environment. If we know that, we begin to understand how to construct narratives that have others compelled to engage us. But that's not how we are conditioned in the current. Today, the self and cause and effect orientations tend to dominate how we engage others in our environment and the coordination of action with others. The self has taken a predominant role in how most people, especially in the West, choose to act among others. And the old cause and effect relationship, the stimulus and response narrative that has long been, long been outdated, is still alive and well in most of what you can observe in how human beings attempt to coordinate action with each other, and we are here to challenge this notion. Our study of transaction, or the transactional metaphysics that we study, they challenge these notions of self and cause and effect. So I want to get into that particular set of distinctions. Now, um, I'm going to be uh, pulling most of this work you can find in our book, Transactionalism and Historical Interpretive Study, which you can get to uh, on, from, our, from our website, and I'm going to uh, make this more available here in a little bit. Uh, but, I, but these are the fundamental tenets of the metaphysics of transactionalism or transactional approaches that we say uh, allow people to recognize how other people attempt to move in the marketplace as you move to coordinate action with others. There are three basic forms here. Uh, the first one is to pay attention to is what we call self-action or self-actional behavior. The next one is interaction or interactional behavior. And the third is transaction. When we talk about individuals as independent, sole and separate entities who are at cause at cause for their existence, their world, their environment, that's the source of all, and, and that we somehow escape our environment. That's what we're talking about when we talk about self-acting. When we talk about cause and effect, we're talking about two self-acting entities that are held separate and uh, fundamentally are out causing and moving without concern for change and consider themselves unchangeable entities. And when we talk about transaction, we're talking about a truly transformational relationship of reciprocation. Self-action views the individual as a separate entity from the environment, a kind of spectator in the environment, or worse, an overlord of it. An entity independent and removed from the environment rather than an aspect of it. That's what we mean when we say behavior or action that is self-action. This view allows for all kinds of notions of the individual as cause in the matter of their situations, cause in the matter of their satisfaction, cause in the matter of their conditions of life. 
single and sole cause and taken to an extreme radical self-action leads to beliefs that being and thinking alone give way to a thing or a situation becoming so. That you in your mind can simply believe a thing into existence or that how you be is enough. It's like radical ontology to be consumed by something enough to say that my own me inside of me and my own being and how I'm going to be is going to affect something as fundamental and objective as an airplane or the like. Parking places, lights changing, superstitions and forces that were once attributed to the environment as cause, like the volcano is angry with the human culture so it goes off into uh, situations where circumstances of human existence get relocated is the path of the evolution of thought and behavior of mankind. That those things that were once located in the environment as cause have changed over time and that new location is the human mind, the consciousness, or even more specifically, our brain. There's a quote from Knowing in the Known that Dewey and Bentley wrote that I absolutely love, and, and it refers to all the spooks, fairies, essences, and entities that once had inhabited portions of matter now took flight to new homes, mostly in or at the human body, and more particularly, the human brain. In other words, all of the activity of our environment is somehow related to our thinking of it. And you can hear this in modern-day dialogue in every discourse if you just listen keenly to the superstitions, if you listen to the narratives that, that give way to certain kinds of beliefs and practices that somehow those things inside our head are going to manifest themselves in an objective domain like the marketplace like the objective domain of the physicality of your body inside an environment like a game. I want you to pay attention out there. Now, most of it isn't radical. Most of it is really subtle. I caught myself the other day in one where I just kind of giggled inside this study. It's so present, and it is so given by the narratives of Hollywood and popular media that we can now describe things that never existed and never will exist by virtue of the narratives, the powerful narratives that get constructed in, inside this domain. And we, it is perpetuated continually in what we call news, which is nothing more than another form of entertainment. When we consider ourselves as cause, we, we, we live in a kind of existence, in, especially in the marketplace, that gives way to a certain kind of thinking like, if it is to be, it's up to me solely that I am the one who has to be the solution. This is what we mean by self-acting. Whitehead calls this radical self-acting independent individuality, an orientation of supremacy or power that ignores the conditions of the environment, the concerns of others, like the conceit that you can hear every single day if you just listen. Instead of considering that we are a co-creative or a co-constitutive, reciprocal, coexistent aspect, not an entity, 
but a coexistent reciprocal aspect of an ever-evolving environing and dynamic creation called our environment and that we are in constant reciprocation or exchange, it gives way to a self-causal behavior. Self-actual behavior gives way to other serious problems that I hear every single day in, in the, the folks who struggle around this particular concept in their studies and getting work done in their overwhelm in their disappointments, in their activities, and so forth. Self-actual behavior, and much of this is, was promulgated by a radical self-improvement self and the empowerment movements, which you can read about uh, in, in much of our work. The psychological and ontological problems that self-actual behavior exaggerate are, are done so because of an inaccurate self-appraisal. And think about it like this, in a world where the individual is empowered as the cause, then all matter of situations then come home and find their source in the individual. That means that all the good things, but worse, all the bad things. And it, it's all the bad things. Red lights, parking places become a consequence of some behavior. Bad things happen must be caused, and when, when, when radical self-action is in place, then people take on a diminishment of character. It is hard for them to recognize their own motivations. It is difficult for them to understand why things happen. It must be because of me. If I'm so at cause in the matter of my life that all conditions are given by that, when things don't go well, as they often won't, it must be about me. It can't be anything else. I'm not doing something or saying something or being in a certain way. This is, the, this is the, one of the things that John and I battle continually, is the recognition that we are a, an a organism in an environment that is in a constant dynamic. It is reciprocal. It, everything isn't you, and you don't have the control of every single element or aspect in this environment. There are things you cannot control and never will. And to, and to hold any other orientation is a dangerous one, we say. In our next episode, we interview Joe and Joni Rocco, a husband-wife team from Denver, Colorado, who came to understand one another's personality and transactional behavior and reduced an 80-hour work week to 40. I fit 100% into a performer personality, and Joe fit uh, 75% into producer and about 25% into judge and things just started clicking for me why he says and does things and why I say and do things and I, I couldn't get enough of it. If you'd like to know more about influence ecology and our approach, check out our webinar Ambitious Living, The Eight Defining Principles. The webinar is available globally. We'll teach you the core principles practiced by the most successful and effective men and women we know. This webinar is for those who aspire to an influential life that provides measurable satisfaction for themselves, their family, and their organizations. This webinar is specifically designed for those who don't want to sacrifice a well-balanced life for superior financial rewards. They want it all. To find out more, you can find the link in the show notes for this podcast at influenceecology.com forward slash podcast. That's influenceecology.com forward slash podcast. Or in the U.S. or Canada, you can text the word AMBITION to 805-262-9008 and we'll send the registration link right to your mobile phone.
Again, text the word AMBITION to 805-262-9008. Also in our show notes, you'll find all the links to websites, books, or special downloads mentioned in this podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, please find us on iTunes and subscribe, review, like, and share. Help to get the word out and make this podcast a huge success. Thank you for another great episode of the Influence Ecology Podcast. I'm your host, John Patterson. We wish to thank our guest, Luisa De Silva, for such a powerful interview. This podcast is made possible by the brilliant work of the Influence Ecology staff, mentors, and members around the world. We're grateful for co-founder Kirkland Tibbles and his 30-plus years of specialized study and practice that make all this possible. And finally, thanks to our producer, Jason Kelly and Marcus Bell, editing and music by Bellringer Productions, music supervision, Dashley LeCorps, and Marcus Bell.